Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 238. Alien Worlds, Xenobiology and Speculative Zoology Presented by Jason Pitt, Rob Donahue, Darren Watts, and Joshua A.C. Newman uh, This is a panel recorded at Metatopia 2018 about Xenobiology and Speculative speculative zoology uh uh my name is jason pitt genesis of legend publishing and my day job is as a wildlife biologist slash landscape ecologist for the canadian federal government uh where i deal with things like pizzly bears um what oh we'll talk about pizzly bears um and (laughs) Uh, in my spare time, I design role-playing games, uh, several of them science fiction, uh, and I make alien ecologies for fun, because I'm one of those people. Um, which is, speculative zoology is effectively the same thing as, um, uh, constructed languages, uh, in linguistics. It's the same hobby. It's just the biology side of the show. So, on my left. I am Darren Watts. I'm a game designer, uh, and uh, I have very little actual good reason to be here, except for the fact that I run the panel and seminar track, and this sounded like a fun one, uh, conversation to be part of. So, uh, I'm have all kinds of opinions about this, but I don't actually wind up writing as much science fiction as I would like to these days. But uh, it is always... uh, Xenobiology as plot element uh, is kind of like one of my favorite topics to just chat about, so... And hey, I'm Rob Donahue uh, uh, from Evil Hat and some other stuff. Uh, I have no business being here. And uh, that's fine, because uh, I'm mostly here to be convinced by Jason that this is not a useless waste of my time, and that there are things that I, as someone with no particular knowledge of biology beyond my high school education, um, can get some genuine value from this, rather than just making things up from pretty pictures. Fair. Fair. Uh, So... Speculative zoology is uh, a bit of a niche hobby in that it is the idea of let's see if we could construct something uh, that is based off of alien life forms and how those would grow up under different constraints. Um, And you've seen a number of examples of this in the media. Uh, Sorry, in like movies, etc. Um, we don't have that many alien ecologies in the, on CNN. Um, so, some good examples of what we're talking about here. Uh, there is alien slash aliens. That is a 
excellent example of, oh, so you mean you need to use humans as an intermediate life stage to grow your offspring. You have acidic blood. Are you saying uh, bad things? Um, I'm saying they're useful things. I'm saying they're plot-generating things. Yeah. They're, they're, so that's... But it's internally consistent. If you look at some of the elements of the the appearance, the behavior, the lifestyles, the reproductive cycles. It generally works, except for the whole, like, do you need humans to reproduce? Um, and if so, where... Well, no, because three has a dog. Yeah, isn't it, like, what, yeah, the, the dog and the dog one causes different behaviors, so the idea is that they just need some kind of yeah. to reproduce. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, sorry. Uh, but we haven't had enough, you know... Li- other living critters running around uh, in outer so space you, you were, you that we've run into. Deep enough. Into oh yeah, yeah. The, the alien and predator. Uh, well, yeah, yeah fair, fair. I, I, yes. Where does cost- all the extra mass come from? Is an excellent question, but that's a. You know. Oh, there, there's places. <laughs> um, so, aliens is a good example. An even better example is Avatar. That it. <laughs> Not the bad one, the pretty one. That doesn't help. That's it, fair. It, it's not a good one, but it's the ecology of it was the most interesting part of it. So, if you look at that movie, you will note that with one exception, uh, all of the life forms that show up native to Pandora come in twos. There's actually uh, evolutionarily tied pairs. You've got the like pterodactyl things and the giant dragons, which share elements of physiology. They have the little dogs uh, and the big dogs. You've got the monkeys and uh, monkey analog, lemur analogs, and the sentients. You'll note there's actually one big. They all have the the neural cue things. Those are all fairly consistent. Uh, bioluminescence is all over the bloody eco, uh, ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of flying and whatnot uh, going on with regards to all the floating rocks because there's a lot of really good habitat there. Uh, you've got uh, super reinforced bones, etc., which are also useful if you're climbing up vines to floating islands and occasionally falling down. Having titanium reinforced skeletons are useful. Um, the one place where it falls down hard due to narrative convenience um, is the fact that every other life form other than the, uh, native, the, the um, Navi have six limbs. But the Navi have four. That's the only bit that really breaks the biology. The rest of it is actually, because they come with sort of those pairings, you can see, oh, there's actual evolution that's going on here. So, uh, why is that a problem? Uh, because uh, the quick answer is that Hox genes uh, are messy and usually kill organisms in the evolutionary process. But um, more precisely, 
Um, huge changes to physiology like that are hard. It, usually you'll get things like arms will turn into wings. Uh, bat wings are actually fingers where the webbing between uh, your fingers, uh, those sort of extend out. and the, uh, So they use adapted structures. Building brand new limbs is very hard. And you won't find many um, uh, yeah, yeah. cordites like yeah, 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 right. yeah. Um, which is actually why wyverns are perfect, but dragons are. Hmm, you got six limbs there. That's a bit of an issue. Can fuck everything. They can have whatever biology they want. That is fair, <laughs> but I'd prefer if a wyvern fucked like Sleipnir or something, and then you came out with a six limb. Dude, to, like your tastes in this are, are impacted is just tangential. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So long as Loki's involved, it's all good. Um, so, yeah, so there is that. So that's a good example of speculative zoology. Uh, the Expanse is beautiful. Uh, my, my, I nerd so hard over those books and those movies, because those shows, because they do a really good job. They did some really solid research. Um, they had, you know, later in the series, they run into this, small lizard thing that excretes its stomach on top of its prey and just externally digests it, then sucks it in. Uh, which is neat and weird and super alien, but it makes sense. Like, from a like physiological perspective, it's like, oh, okay, I can see how that would work. Um... Uh, there's even a few so, others. So does it matter to you when watching a piece that, like, uh, uh, or reading or consuming any piece of like fiction with this, that it actually like explores the edge cases of real evolution of real animals, kind of thing, to like expand them up, or are you looking for something that's like even more divergent that doesn't exist anywhere? So fundamentally, I'm looking for things that explore some very basic principles. So let, let's back way the heck back and talk about Ecology 101. Here's the things that you have to be paying attention to when you're dealing with ecology in general. Things need to get energy from somewhere. On Earth, this mostly comes down to sunlight, occasionally uh, sugars uh, produced by sunlight, starches, produced by sunlight, weird chemicals at the bottom of geothermal vents, and, amusingly and very interestingly, radiation. There's a kind of radiotrophic fungus in Chernobyl that grows on radiation. It's... It's... Yeah! So... If you're doing speculative zoology, you can totally do, yep, these are trees that grow on magic. They suck up magic from the ley lines, and there's glowing tendrils that sink into the ley lines. They get energy from somewhere. I don't care where it comes from. Oh, these are these feed on death energy. Excellent. They, they, the flowers just pop up around corpses. Delightful. I'm a big fan. Um, but energy comes from somewhere. The, there is a law of diminishing returns when you go up the food chain. Um, 
for every, uh, it's usually a 10 times loss. So uh, in order to feed, uh, let's say one kilogram of rabbit, you need 10 kilograms of grass. In order to feed one kilogram of a hawk that's eating a snake, that's eating a rabbit, that's eating grass, that is what? Uh, is that 10,000? 1,000. 1,000? Yeah. Like, it, ow. That's a, that is a lot of grass that that hawk is going through. So your super predators are limited in number because they need to eat something and it costs energy to hunt things and eat them and to digest them and everything is super inefficient. Um, which means that you're going to get a lot of stuff that's growing off of whatever the basic energy source is. You'll get a lot, a, a fairly large volume of herbivores that or other things that are eating those. But predators at the higher up the chain are fewer and fewer and far between. Um, which is so the reason... That, that's a problem for me. Because, you know, in terms of games, predators are kind of more fun. Because fighting cows is not very exciting. So how can I, how can I work around that? Uh, so the ways that you can work around that generally consist of... Uh, those first order things getting energy from weird places. Let's say, for instance, you've got a rust monster is an interesting example. Okay. Excellent. I am eating iron ore. Okay, I'm not competing with the sunlight. Like, I'm, I'm not taking up that ecological niche. And I'm assuming that due to magic, I can just, like, grab a ridiculous amount of calories out of, I don't know, I'm doing fusion in my stomach or something. Um, so that's how I get my energy. So now you can have an, a rust monster based ecosystem, so long as you've got enough iron lying around. Uh, the fusion does solve a great many problems. <laughs> I, I do so are we talking about like a rabbit level population of rust monsters? Suddenly this world looks pretty interesting to start out with. It doesn't. Well, no, well, but that, what it definitely raises the question of, okay, what's eating the rust monsters? Because that right, yeah. does, does create a very interesting question. Uh, apparently wyverns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's how you get a large number of wyverns. Um, and but ideally, that's... once you look at that, that's like a that's a story generator, right? I mean, uh, oh, the totally. Whole, the whole point of doing of, of doing this kind of like a, a academic exercise for yep. this is to find some way to like generate some new it is interesting to, is to story. Is the solve from wyverns? Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. In the in the same way, like you know, the 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 Couture books or something like that, oh, where they like yep. start yep. with an ecological problem of a more successful ecosystem than ours being transplanted onto our planet. Yep. That's just, that's the detail. That's the interesting thing that starts the conflict. The conflict, in the end, is about well, the people. Sure, but the, also it's got, you know, giant killer worms that right, these exactly. things. That's a kind of an important part, because otherwise if it was just the ecosystem being more successful, eventually we'd all be kudzu to death and it would be... Well, but boring, over the course of the book it does that too, right? It I mean, does. The kudzu all turns out to be man-eating as well, stuff, right? right? Yeah, so... Um, so, some of the other things are, um, do you know how we feed whales? <laughs> whales eat krill, who eat algae. 
whales are actually at the same ecological niche as, you know, snakes and cats. They're pretty low in the chain. Um, and krill are pretty efficient as far as things go. So they just scoop up huge volumes. Um, sharks are a lot higher in the chain. So you get a lot fewer sh pounds of shark per uh, pound of whale, which is a good thing. Because we don't want giant sharks the size of... You say that, <laughs> but I'm playing D&D. &D. That, that's, that's fair. And it's quite possible that in D&D, &D, you actually have a lot more predators for one reason. They are being predated upon by adventurers hungry for XP. Go. So you're actually clearing out ecological niches. So I'm good with that. So we're, we're saying there's, the, and from the bottom end, this is a setting there is much more abundant energy from more sources, and this is how it's reflected. Yep. Okay, I, I can I can use that. Uh, so all I need is a quick calorie to XP conversion table, and I'm good. Right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Drive through XP. Yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah. Um, that's what trolls are for. <laughs> yeah, troll ecology no. makes things exciting. Nope, 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 nope. So, yeah, so you know where the energy is coming from. You know how the energy is being lost. And then that energy is being used for a whole bunch of things. The organisms have to move, they have to find food, they have to. Uh, consume that food and digest it. They have to reproduce. They have to grow bits of themselves. Like, if you've got a porcupine, it needs to grow quills. If you have a snake, it has to produce uh, venom. Though all of those things take energy, which is the one of the reasons why we have fewer tigers than we have rabbits, because those things are bloody expensive. And rabbit, the rabbit strategy is, let's just make more rabbits. Because if we have enough rabbits, the wolves will be full. And we'll still have more rabbits than wolves. Which is a pretty decent strategy. Um, I, I might say it's an effective strategy. Whether it's a good strategy is another matter entirely. For rabbit kind, it's a good strategy. Well, they're not super bright. For individual rabbit, it's a shitty strategy. Um, so there's actually... Well, we're on strategy. Well, who gets to be bright is kind of like part of the discussion that we're having. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's, it's not really in Rabbit's best interest to be bright. Um, so there is actually a... Uh, the technical terms are K and R strategies. Um, one of these uh, is limited. Uh, it effectively says, we're just going to reproduce as much as inhumanly possible and make millions of babies. Because if we get a one in a million survival rate, we're good. That's all we need. That's how our insects live. And that's why we have more insects than any other kind of animal in the world. By mass. Yes, by mass. Um, by contrast, you get things like humans and pandas and uh, whales that invest a ludicrous amount of effort to make these really expensive energetically 
but really competent, long-living um, individuals, offspring. So that's the reason why we tend to have like one, two, maybe three kids these days. Because it is, um, I think it's safe to say... Uh, our survival rate is better than rabbits. Yeah. I I'm pretty sure I can take a rabbit in a fight. <laughs> uh, it's also a little exhausting to do that. No, I can like, take a couple rabbits, I think. Uh, <laughs> have you ever tried teaching a rabbit to speak? Toilet no, training a rabbit is a no, challenge. I'm that. And, and raising children is definitely an energy drain, so... Uh. But your kid is a lot longer lasting than most rabbits. Oh, that's the hope. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the art, do you have few really high quality? Effectively, are you going for quality or quantity of offspring? It is one of those big ecological decisions. Um, so... Uh, then there's all sorts of defenses of, like, I don't want to be eaten, so now I'm going to get spiky. Oh, that, that, that is a good evolutionary trait that helps in many cases. Um, I want to have better teeth so I can manage to eat something that's spiky. Okay, or heavily armored. That's a useful thing for eating. All of these evolutionary traits are um, interesting in different ways. The place where speculative zoology gets super bloody interesting is where you start moving away from Earth and playing around with some different constraints. So let me just ramble on about a world that I made. Um, real, real simple example. So on this world, you have it's it is filled with hurricane force winds. The average temperatures like. 90 Fahrenheit. Um, so it's this windy, hot world. They, the tree analogs, if they were stiff like oaks, would break. So they're willowy. They bend they, in the wind because it's hurricane force winds. They can grow pretty quickly because there's a lot of heat energy coming into the system. So, what kind of thing would be adapted to that environment? Not rabbits. <laughs> uh, I assume anything that's small and light and benefits from moving a lot. Uh, I, I think of things like spores and leaves and shit like that. So, the critters that uh, live on this world um, have been called uh, squidurals. They're arboreal oh, squid. God. <laughs> because <You are> Canada's <laughs> <greatest> monster. <laughs> because they are small, chittering little creatures that get flung from tree to tree, do sort of the sugar glider glide thing, landing, and they they have tentacles so they can latch onto other trees, and they uh, break the nuts of those trees and eat the nuts. Uh, because they're mildly tool-using arboreal squid. Oh, I figured they'd have all right. Like a, I figured they'd have no wait. Like a squid, they'd have a, a like a beak, a beak in the center. Well, yeah, yeah, but you have to like break the hard shell, right? Well, and, and, and then start chewing yeah. on the uh, uh, on the tip. 
tastier, softer nut inside. Right, yeah, but that's what the beak is for. Yeah. Just to crack the shells. Yeah, yeah. No, like no, a, the like a no, toucan no, the beak's, or something. No, the beak's like not that. that strong because their their uh, skeletal system is reasonably flexible because they're all about taking high impacts. With yep. Their, uh, high oh, yeah, good point. Okay. Yeah. All right, so, but this is what I got to ask. Did the squirrels come from you thinking forward from the problem, or did you were you just looking for an explanation for Cthulhu squirrels? <laughs> uh, so there are actually two things here. Uh, one, I built a world that I was like, I want this to be a horrible place uh, that is unpleasant to humans. So the col uh, the human colonists have to live on the mountaintops. Okay. Okay. 90 degrees, hurricane force winds at ground level. Yeah, that, that sounds like a reasonable excuse. Okay. Someone else mentioned arboreal squid. How the heck would I make arboreal squid? Yeah, back solving from okay. the blue squirrel. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so then I built the trees as the intermediary between the uh, terrible hurricane world and the arboreal squid. Um, you know, no, Jason, I, I'm, I'm starting to feel like the, the thing may be here that uh, it's not so much that science is supposed to limit us, is that science just gives us an extra set of tools for bullshitting. Oh, totally. But well, they're that's nice tools. The purpose of uh, xenobiology and fiction, right? I mean, it's not like the aliens in War of the Worlds make any sort of actual plausible sense that, like, they would invade a planet without actually checking to see whether, you know, the... Uh, Local microbes or whatever were poisonous to them. Right? It's, 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 we don't we don't think that deeply. It's, it's true, but this is a, a much more generous use of science than the internet has taught me. <laughs> and um, yet, so before I dig we into, have, we have a fine tradition of like those Dragon Magazine ecology of the piercer, you know. Oh yeah. Or whatever. That, like, oh, I've made, read them. Made less sense than this. I've read all of those. Those oh, are so God. bloody beautiful. Oh, they hurt me. <laughs> Inside. Um, so, before I dig into another good, um, more in-depth example, uh, let me get back to uh, Pisley's. Mm -hmm. So, you may have heard of this small thing called climate change. This means that grizzly bears have been migrating north because they want more food and the, there's more food further up north. This means that polar bears that normally live on the ice are having to move further and further south because the permafrost is melting under them. This means that they're coming into contact and breeding hybrids between grizzly bears and polar bears. Grizzly bears, the meanest, most temperamental bloody bears around. Polar bears, one of the few species that still recreationally eats humans. This is not a good sign. They appear like uh, grizzly bears with bad dye jobs. So the, the thing is, I, I still have to say this is not as terrible as I imagined from the name. <laughs> uh, so uh, there's actually two names, Pizzlies or Growler Bears, depending on which is the mom and which is the dad. I'm not making this up. Come up, we're talking about Pizzlies and Growler Bears. 
Wait, what? <laughs> no, don't ask him. Don't, no, don't seriously. ask him. Don't encourage him. Polar bear grizzly hybrids. This is oh, Josh. He deserves to be here. Oh, we got a hand, too. Do we know yet if they breathe true? Yeah, that. Uh, we're trying to shoot them wherever we see them. <laughs> Which suggests probably yes, I guess. So. Um, but let me tell you about Canis supus. So, this is a bit of a joke in biology circles, but it's an interesting one. So, you know how dogs can reproduce? You can have a golden retriever and a pit bull and they can have a pup. Fantastic. You can have a Great Dane and a Chihuahua. That's weird. You can have a Chihuahua. You can have a Chihuahua and a Coyote. Whose kid is now sleeping with a wolf? What the hell? <laughs> they breed true. Canis supus. Our definition of species is we cannot produce viable offspring. The entire Canis genre, like genus, is like <laughs> no. We're, we're, we're like humans in D&D. We, we'll just... We will screw anything. We will have offspring and hybrids. And you're going to have to live with it. Which is why we actually have a... Um, new species, koi dogs, which are popping up in uh, eastern, uh, northeastern US and um, uh, Canada as well. And I'm just going to ask, just so this is just complete sidebar. I actually grew up in farm country, and, we, and koi dogs were a thing that ate geese and were a real problem. Yeah. I, uh, well, the thing is, how many of them were there? That was not an easy question to answer, but enough that we had to scare them off, and they ate the fucking geese. Um, so the, they are, in evolutionary timescales, they're bloody new. Mm-hmm. Um and they have filled in ecological niches that have been cleared out by the lack of wolves. Um, and they are, I, if I recall the percentages, it's something to the tune of like 60% coyote, 30% wolf, 10% domestic dog. But if it's the right size, it'll still look like corgi shape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jason, Jason Walters owns one of these. Before, and I would like to point out that I am watching it evolve in front of me. Right, that it will have thumbs next month. Of course, it's literally the smartest dog that I have ever seen, like terrifyingly so. Right, and will tolerate no none of your bullshit. Right, like the, it, it's the most loving, friendly dog. But if you don't keep it busy all the time, it has a very kind of like malicious streak when it's bored. It starts to dismantle things in the house just for fun. And uh, it, it will hurt you when you try to walk because it still has its border collie, like gene sensibility of like things need to be in orders. But it has the very coyote like, and if you don't uh, respond to my putting you in order, I will put you in order, right? In a fairly violent way if you you know like cross it. It's a it's it's a terrifying creature, um, and. And I, I don't know why we allow it to be owned, but we do apparently. So. And the interesting thing there is they're, because they have enough wolf in them, they are able to take down white-tailed deer that yeah. coyotes 
can take down juveniles, but that's about it. Because they have enough uh, domestic dog, they're actually comfortable hanging around humans. The fact that you, all, the fact that you almost just mixed Canadian and domestic dog as concepts <laughs> is fascinating to me. <laughs> But well, this, this is a story premise, right? Like, I mean, the existence of this, and then, of course, like, the magnification of yeah, this sure. trend or whatever, obviously, like, generates plot. Yeah, uh, like, you know, this, this is a... The way that to, you know, just kind of, like, what, you know, like, read a, any kind of, you know, science magazine about, like, the changes that are happening, and then just say, and then make this ten times worse. What if this but worse? And, you know, suddenly you'll find yourself with a setting, with a story, with a plot that, like, actually, like, generates that, so... The, uh, yeah. The way um, the the one I was going to use as an example for it is um, the, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes, Zamuck Time, right? What if sentient being had mating drives like fish, right? And like, how would that how would that change the way like a creature, you know, like this sentient creature would actually act and interact for it? As goofy as the episode is, the science question of it is really kind of interesting, right? Of like, what would it be like for a species to have? A, a, a mating drive that worked on a like years long cycle and uh, you know was that overpowering? That's an interesting question that can generate cool story, even in something as kind of like lighthearted and silly as Star Trek is. Right, so. I think that's one of the curious things about uh, sexuality is a really big deal for humans. Obviously, sex right. is a really big part of evolution. So, as far as we understand biology. Sex will have a part, but it's such a big part of human culture. Do you guys hear me okay? Just kind of dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, sex is a really big part of human culture. So if you have a species that's not, that doesn't have this, like, let's just have sex all the time capability, what does that do um, to, to that culture? Uh, there's a series, a comic series called Finder. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's utterly amazing. Uh, and there's a, there are people who are basically dinosaur people, and they don't really have a sex drive, as like in, 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 uh, the way that we do. But they have. Um, there's a one of them is a professor, and uh, a student falls in love with him. She's a human. He's a. He's a Giant bird, uh, and uh, she goes. She figures out that they're going out on a date. Oh, she's sort of trying to get this to happen. And he goes out, and she's riding on his back. He's, you know, medium-sized dinosaurs, ten feet long. She's riding on his back, and they're having a great time. And then he barks, and this is apparently they carry their young around on their back. They regurgitate their food, and this feels really good in this sort of paternal way. And so this was this uh, dinosaur's way of saying, like, I like you like a daughter. But she has to, she's of course horrified by this because as far as she can tell, he's barking in revulsion because of you know something. And she runs away and asks another professor for advice about this. But what I love about this is that because she's human, she's treating this like this is a sex thing. Because he's this dinosaur person, he's treating this in this completely other way. They don't right. have sex that haphazardly, but they have these familiar relationships that feel good to them, like sex feels good to us, but it's this completely alien thing. You know, they might have been friends in the end. It's a somewhat weird comic. <laughs> 
but it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, let's actually. I mean, I actually have a question for you. So All right. We, we we were talking about going back to principles because uh, I love having a handful of principles to build things on. If I want this the, this magical made up shit that I'm making to feel like it's coherent. Um, and we, we, we said, okay, energy has to come from somewhere, so it's gonna do that. Um, apparently, you really don't like mixing the number of limbs for some reason, uh, so there's probably some principle around that. Um, don't assume that our cultural assumptions translate into biology. That seems like a solid principle. I can take these three things and do things. Give me some others, give me some principles, so uh, my dungeon's not stupid. Uh, so, Having multiple uh, parents for a given offspring increases genetic variability. Mm. Clones are bloody common. They're just they just tend to be bacteria and occasionally trees. Um, so so kobolds. Uh, yeah, uh, so, yeah, kobolds, could, uh, could I use, could I, could you I could, make that the biology of my kobolds? Um, could I, I was gonna say, is the, do you know something about kobolds I don't? No, that sounds like, so, cool. are they um, all so why not? Actually, as a, as a really good example, um, uh, Warhammer goblins mm -hmm. are fantastic. Do yes. <laughs> they, I believe, if I recall correctly, they bud and then they grow through Lamarckian evolution, and the survivors get bigger and bigger and turn into orcs. And then eventually uh, bud. Like, yes, that that is a thing. So, um, uh, so I, I think that's actually one of those interesting questions. Like, what happens when everybody's not ready for action? Like we. We often cut out of our stories, like what happens when somebody's pregnant? Um, what happens when uh, when you're digging your den or whatever? Like that's most of existence yep. is that kind of thing. And if like I don't know what a kobold lives in, I guess they live in dungeons. Dungeons, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, that may be a principle, right? Like I mean, like one of the first things we have to talk about is what lives in a dungeon. What what finds that plausible, right? But like like wild. Kobolds maybe like burrow on like giant termites. Well, oh my god, what are they like naked mole rats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, one, one giant piss covered. Yeah, we yeah. kobold. <laughs> Love it. Um, I'm already sold. And actually, <laughs> you, you, you know, you know how co what kobolds are in you know random generic fantasy world I just made up. Oh, uh, it's the intermediate larval stage for dragons. <laughs> um, sure. The, but they, the they dragons make a bazillion of them because yeah. only so many of them survived to actually become dragons. Exactly. Right. They metamorphose. As noted, dragons will fuck anything. Yeah, exactly. Right. And now, kobolds eating grass or dogs or anything. Now, now that's a food source for the dragons. Like that sure. explains how dragons can happen. Uh, so insects have six limbs, six limbs, uh, or eight limbs, or ten limbs, depending on various limb numbers. Um, yes. In your face, Jason. And the part, the thing that I was having a problem with with uh, Pandora was that everything on the bloody planet had six limbs except for one. The ones that were non-mammal had boobs somehow. Yes. <laughs> Those are the limbs, dude. <laughs> it all makes sense now. Mother Tanium is a harsh mistress. 
Uh, everything else having giant lungs except for humans makes sense in a uh, oxygen poor environment where you've got low gravity. Like yeah, there, there's a lot of good things there. Like the reason dinosaurs could get so big is because there was not oxygen or insects at the time. There was not oxygen to power that much muscle. The, yes, they also have lower gravity. Yeah. Lower gravity, is, but it's still a giant lungs for some reason. Yeah. But about the Pandora limb thing, like, is everything on Pandora a mammal or whatever it would be? Uh, no, we've seen things that are not mammals uh, kicking around there. And so having, I would have no problem if the Navi were like bug people and were not clearly like, oh, look, this is the like lemur monkey thing that's clearly in the same evolutionary track that has six limbs. And then the next thing in the phylogenetic well, tree is well, well, apparently they originally cut off two limbs at adulthood? Well, maybe that's, maybe that's the thing. clue in your story, right? Is that oh, like you show up on a planet where everything has six limbs except for the sentience, and then you're kind of like, well, shit, the sentience must be transplants, right? Like, go find where the, go find where the progenitors are or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm not quite, quite getting it entirely, okay. I don't think. Um, like, so, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. Sure. Yeah. What's this, the, the, the Navi, they're, Life cycle goes from two to four arms vice versa, is that what you're saying? Uh, no, so the thing is, everything on the planet has six limbs. Okay. So you'd expect Except for the Navi. Alright, but they only show, they don't show the whole planet per se. And if you look at sections of Earth, if you look at a large portion of Africa, you're going to say most things have four limbs, aren't you? Well, there's so many bugs in Africa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the thing is, because they are evolved from, it's like saying, so, an example. So, here's an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. So, most monkeys have tails. We do not have tails. That's weird. Like, objectively, you back away from that. That's like, why are there no tails and why is there no fur? Well, Those are evolutionary I mean, paths that drag you further away yeah, from. Yeah, apes don't have tails. That's yeah. the point. Yeah, That's where the break is. So it's farther the, the, the break but like way farther up the tree than us. So those kinds of things are further derivations and further away from direct ancestors. So losing limbs, one, there's no actual natural selection reason why you would lose limbs. Unless, like, you get limb cancer on your... Uh, fifth and sixth limb, so they just die. So, would you have been happier if there was like an inter in, an intermediate species between the lemurs that itself yes. had had a smaller yep. number of limbs? Yeah, vestigial limbs. Oh, right, that well, would maybe, be awesome. Maybe the the sentience killed off all the you know the starbelly species. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. That's the 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 the, the four limbed lemurs or whatever it's like true. got killed off because of the habitat. Because as soon as you introduce intelligence, then you have you introduce the then you're introducing all somebody's kinds of screwing messing with somebody messing with somebody messed with it. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the archmage made the freaking owlbears. Yeah, right. Pretty much. Exactly. Right, well that was my point originally. So, is. so that's why I get the, the three versus four limbs, because even if, yeah, okay, maybe things do exist that aren't, but all you're showing us yeah, right. is everything was six, 
and then something with the Ideally, you're only showing us the parts that have something to do with the story that you're telling in the first place. Ideally, I mean, right? but, but in that you know, particularly, they're showing us psychology. Right. Right, exactly. So it, it has. There has. All we can hope for is verisimilitude, right? Right, exactly. That's so there, the there was a um, there was a, a project that I did called Ashleka, where there's uh, a planet where there are ecosystems that are isolated into uh, areas of uh, geyser activity. So that's where there's the chemicals for uh, for life, and then it's evolved separately, largely separately. In one of them, they uh, are radially symmetrical uh, by Fibonacci sequence. So there oh, are God. little wormy things, there are uh, bilaterally symmetrical, trilaterally, and then pentaforms and octaforms. And the biologists who are studying this are saying, are there 13s? Like, what, how far does this go? And what I'm imagining is, this is something about their biology where there's some spiral, like their, their genes, obviously not DNA, but whatever they're using for genes is some sort of Fibonacci spiral. And there are other things that would be there that are anomalous that are basically cancer, right? If you wind up with a four, it's because you've got some non-functional body parts stuck on as a defective organ. So that, that, you know, that, so that was the principle of this, yep. this particular one. So, um, just wanted to quickly mention a couple other random principles and things that are really important for storytelling that people should be aware of. Uh, and then I wanted to uh, quickly uh, barf forth uh, xenobiology. Um, not in a dinosaur kind of way. Sorry, I like you, but... Um, so, one. Invasive alien species are sexy story fodder. Oh God. Oh God. Um, so, look at Australia and how the effects of rabbits on Australia. Just do some research. Now, multiply that by 10 as you drag alien species onto Earth or Terran species onto uh, an alien world. And you get all sorts of really messy story fodder as one of them super outcompetes the other one and has no predators and just takes off. Um, invasive species on Earth are a huge problem and cause all sorts of really messy socioeconomic things. Like, fun fact, Asian carp is messing up shipping between the Mississippi and the Great Lakes. That's affecting economics of shipments from Mexico to Canada because we have some invasive fish from China. That's what? That's pretty awesome. Right. And, that, and that affects like policing policy. Right, yeah. <laughs> that, that suddenly becomes a cultural issue between yeah. humans, right, exactly. Um, we also have, as another uh, key thing that's interesting, um, destabilization of ecosystems causes all sorts of effects. So, in Newfoundland, in Canada, uh, some of my biological predecessors, as in other biologists, were not sensible on fishing management, so they overfished the cod. The cod collapsed. 
This meant that a lot of people were going hungry and going into poverty, and there were a lot of problems. So they closed the, the fishery completely. Now the cod that remain are only the small ones because there was strong selective pressure against being a big cod that could be caught. Guess what's filled that ecological niche? Small cod. No. Jellyfish. Filled the big cod ecological niche. Guess what impact that's having? Everything is terrible? Actually, no. Okay. Lots of turtles. The sea turtle population is improving because the jellyfish population has exploded because we got rid of and ate all the big cod. Well, good this, All right. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. We wrap that up. Any problem that we can solve by eating our way through it is Sorry. a good problem. Uh, I always say there's no ecological problem that can't be solved with the sufficient application of cane tools. Yep. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, like, drawn butter and... Uh, I'm trying, trying to eat my way through this problem here. Um, so it's, my, my wife won't eat squid because they're too smart. Right? That's, her, that's her argument yeah, for that. And, and my argument is I eat them precisely because they're too smart. I'm trying to protect them. Right, yeah. I only eat the smart ones. Right, exactly. I'm trying to protect us. You're welcome. Eat them before they take over, you know? Right, yeah. Um, yes, uh, question. Let me randomly tell you about a project I've got, and then we can just toss one to Joshua because, yeah, you've got plenty too. So, one of the games I'm designing uh, after the war, which is coming to Kickstarter in about a week um, or a year ago for the recording, um, <laughs> is set on a world called Polo. It's an alien world where they do not have, they never evolved uh, vascular plants, so things with veins. Um, pretty much wood uh, or backbones for animals. So that, that means that you've got effectively a whole bunch of moss, algae, uh, and bugs. And that's pretty much the building blocks of your ecosystem. So I was thinking, okay, so how does this become interesting? I know I'm going to build something that's parallel to Earth and something that's like tree-like. How would I do that? Well, they have to build out of something. So I said that the, I, I said, okay, let's set an environmental variable. The ocean is a lot more alkaline. It's full of calcium and whatnot. So you've got a lot of shellfish, coral. So you have terrestrial coral and effectively terrestrial coral spires and moss grows up top where there's lots of sunlight and where it's um, harder for the moss-eating bugs to get to because, of course, there's predators that eat the bugs anteater style along the bottom of, of these. So it gives me an excuse to make bone trees functionally with moss le in replacing leaves. Now that I've got that, I, oh, 
I can do things like let's have floating islands of manufactured sort of pumice uh, floating in the oceans with trees on top, and they're manufactured floating islands that sort of accrete and grow. Now you've got all sorts of ecosystems that you get off of things that are eating this, uh, things that are eating the things eating the plants, and you get all sorts of things like that that sort of pile up. And of course, then you drag in um, rats that we drag in from Earth, uh, and Ursin honeyberry, and like all sorts of other invasive plants. And it's just a disaster ecologically. It's a complete nightmare. Like if you look at this from a sustainability perspective, oh god, this is this is horrifying. Um, but it's good for humans. I was going to say, is that the story purpose for this? Is yeah, to pretty much. A um, location for the humans. It, 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 it's an alien world. Humans came in. We're messing up the ecology. It's good for the time being. Right. But. Yeah. So. Um, so I usually start by taking something that we just assume is a normal thing that life must be like and say, do we still get it if we change that? So I think the way energy comes from somewhere, right? Probably comes from the sun. Uh, what if it comes from a ground more orbiting sun? This is one of my favorite ideas. It turns out this is pretty common out of the galaxy. A lot of ground dwarf is insufficiently massive to diffuse, uh, but they output infrared radiation and, and lots of neutrons, which is great for mutation, not necessarily for, um, for evolution, because it's like rolling the die all the time. Uh, but imagine, if you can imagine, that there's something that can handle those neutrons. And there are ways to do it. You can absorb it, and you can have redundancy, whatever. It's an evolutionary pressure. And you start saying, like, okay, so at this point, we have a star that is warm enough to send some energy out here. And then we have a round dwarf that is sending different wavelengths of energy out to this moon that we'll say is big enough to Hold on, and stuff like that. Uh, and then we'll say, you know, what, so what can we get? And we'll just start somewhere. We'll start with, like, uh, start with a Fibonacci sequence, or we'll start with, um, uh, one of my favorite things is like, okay, so at a certain point, plants and animals diverged on Earth. Uh, what if they did? Like, what if it's, if it's not a real divergence, what do you get if you can move around? If you keep the moving around advantage and you have the photosynthetic, then dogs right. start fucking trees. <laughs> but now productively, as we, we end up with koi trees. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as I'm imagining, so at, at this point, I, I'm just sort of wondering, like, wait, why don't humans so photosynthesize? Wouldn't that be great? The answer is you need about a square mile of <laughs> chromatophores to, uh, sorry, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to for you to gain your own sugar. Oh, so that's a hell of a hairdo. Uh, so what I'm imagining right now is that there are these enormous things that move around to be at the best place on the planet, migrate around a little planet in this complex uh, rhythm of the year around the planet dwarf and the year around the star. Now obviously, that takes a lot of energy. Something's gonna wanna take that energy. What's gonna eat that, all those sugars or whatever it's doing with that photosynthesis? What's going to want to take that energy for cheaper? Is that a predator? Is it a parasite? 
And then, of course, how does the enormous moving mass uh, handle that pressure on parasite? I just keep asking those questions until it gets too complicated, because the whole time I've been drawing and writing about it. After a while, I was kind of like, I'm just kind of a robot by the road. Yeah. <laughs> So we need to wrap up, but uh, quick suggestions on other things to read up on this. Uh, oh my god. Uh, so, uh, Dual Dixon's uh, After Man just went back into print. I'm hoping I'm going to be publishing some of his uh, other books myself in the coming year. Uh, you can look at my blog. You can find it at patreon.com slash Joshua. It's full of weird critters. Uh, lately, I've been doing sort of sorts of things. The latest uh, koi dog that I have up there is uh, is a minotaur, but um, uh, but there's all sorts of stuff with different planets, evolutionary tracks, languages about the way that humans evolve over time. And if you do not know about his science fiction game Shock, which is foundational to many ideas, you should have a copy because it's brilliant and short. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, and the other one was um, the Darwin uh, the expedition. Oh, yes, that's right. Expedition by Wayne D. Barlow. Uh, that is long out of print, and you're going to, if you've got a lot of money, hooray. Get it. <laughs> Get it if yeah. you can he find it, because it's sexy as hell. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, he's the same guy who designed um, uh, Pandora, and you can feel him wince with every extra lid that he's not allowed to put on the <laughs> Uh Anyways, so with that, we'll let you be, but thank you very much. Go forth and make alien monsters. This totally makes me want to do a panel with the same idea, but about cooking. If anybody, because I got here late, if anybody wants to talk to me more about this, we can just talk about this over here because I love talking about it all the time. Yes, it's hard to stop it. It's, yeah.